we're going to be in continuing our series today, Red Letters. And we in this series, we've looked at Jesus's longest message to us that is recorded in the Gospels. This is found in Matthew chapter five through Matthew, or Matthew chapter seven. And we're going through this series because we want to see what Jesus has to say to us. Jesus covers a whole lot of ground. He covers a whole lot of topics and it's very much like rapid fire. And we're covering like just several topics that he covers and we're going through verse by verse. And so I'm not skipping through any verses on this. Like we're literally going to go through every single word that Jesus said to us. And we're just going to look at it and see what it means to us today. In the first week, we talked about how Matthew, when Matthew was writing this and he was recording it, why was it important for Matthew to record this, this uh, message that Jesus gave and when other gospels didn't do it? And that was because Matthew's idea was that he wanted to talk about how the kingdom of God was at hand, was in the person of Jesus. And so we can experience the kingdom of God because we experience Jesus's work in our lives. We can be active participants in it. And so Jesus came to bring good news to oppressed people. We talked about the Beatitudes and how God's blessings a lot of times contradict what the world says. And so the world might say, well, if you got a million dollars and you're driving a Mercedes or a Tesla and, and you've got a 401k and you're retired at 35 and you've got all this stuff, then you're blessed. But Jesus, God in the Beatitudes says that blessing is different. Blessing is different because blessing is when we have God's active in our lives and, and God's working through us and we we are leaning on him for our spiritual needs. Then we're blessed. That's what the Beatitudes teach us. Then the, in week three, we talked about how we now have the power to be agents of change in the world. We're salt and we're light. And he, Jesus, again, talks about what righteousness looks like. It's not just uh, just doing and saying all the right things. We're not we're not ever going to get there. We're not you're never going to be good enough. Doesn't that make you feel good about coming to church today? You're never going to be good enough. You're never going to get there. That's why he came and died. He came and died for you and for me to where we don't have to be good enough. We are righteous because Jesus is righteous. We are good because Jesus is good. We are whole because Jesus is whole. We have peace because Jesus is peace. That's good news. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to get there on your own. Jesus does it for you. Last week, we talked about how anger, Jesus talked about anger, and, and he, we talked about how this identifies what's most important to you. And one thing that we, we pointed out that he said was Jesus cares as much about our relationships with others as our relationships with him. And so if we're at worshiping, the, the analogy or the example that he gave is if you're worshiping and you remember that someone has something against you, lead, like just stop your worship, go make it right, and then you can come back. And so it really matters to God how our relationships are with each other. And so you can't say, oh, I'm a strong Christian. I have a good relationship with God and treat other people like trash. You just can't do it. That's not, you're not playing by the rules when you do that. This is not going to work. This week, we're going to continue to look at the definitions of righteousness that Jesus gave to us. And we're going to look at three things that he talks about. And these are the topics in order that he talks about them. Lust, divorce and marriage, and oaths. Lust, divorce and marriage, and oaths. Here's the thing that you need to know. God is for your marriage. For those of you who are married and those of you who have been married, you know that sometimes marriage is hard, right? It's hard. You've got two people trying to agree on anything, even where you're going to go to eat. It is hard. There's arguments that uh, there's arguments that you can have with married people where you agree on something and you're still arguing about it. You know, that's just how it is a lot of times. But you need to understand that God is for 
your marriage. If you're married or if you're yet to be married or you were married or whatever, God is for your marriage. Marriage is the first institution that God created. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter two, verse 24, it says, therefore man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Marriage was the first institution that God created, even before the church, even before having his chosen people, Israel, even before nations were set up, marriage was the first institution that God created. The church is also called the bride of Christ in Ephesians uh, chapter five. And so we see now that, 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 that marriage is very, very important to God. Let's look at a couple stats. In 2010, about a decade ago, a, a study was done and there were uh, 2.1 million marriages in the United States at that time. 2.1 million marriage, that's 6.8 uh, per thousand people. And when I say that, that's not like people who are married, that's people who got married in that year. Um, in the same year, there were 880,000 divorces, that's divorces, that's 3.6 per 1,000 people. This would put the divorce rate at that year at about 53%. However, the divorce rate continues to drop has continued to drop drastically over the past several uh, past 15 years or so. Today, it's about 35%. Studies show that millennials, so if you were born between the ages of, or between 1981 and about 1995, um, millennials are less likely to get divorced than previous generations. You're less likely to get divorced if that's kind of your age range than previous generations. However, you are far more likely to cohabitate, which skews the data, meaning that you are living together with someone who is not your spouse. Therefore, you know, it's like, well, they're, they're less likely to get divorced. Well, that's because they're less likely to get married in, to begin with. They're less likely to get married to begin with. And so for, for people living together prior to marriage, we, we, we know what this means. Their, their likelihood, though, uh, their likelihood, the study found of, divorce, of getting divorced jumps to 80%. And so your likelihood, the statistical likelihood of getting a divorce a few years ago was 53%, dropped to 35%. But if you live together with your significant other prior to getting married, your likelihood of getting a divorce jumped to 80%. Therefore, when we look at what the Bible says about marriage and about sex, we see that sex is in the confines of marriage. It's meant to be in the confines of marriage. So any sin that's a sexual sin is a sin against marriage, either present or a future one. Romans chapter one, verse 24 says this, therefore God gave them up to their lusts of their hearts and to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. We have and we live in a culture that is, that is just uh, like, we've turned the, the, the sex dial up to like a hundred. Like we just turned up the volume of it and we have to know what the Bible says and what the Bible teaches us about this so that we can live a pure life. When we look at creation, we talked about how God created the institution of marriage. When we look at it, here's how, here's how we have to see it. When you look at the order, there's God, God created man. God has dominion over man. God, God, basically we're meant to worship God. God is meant to rule over us. So God is over man. Then God puts man over creation. So you've got God over man, man over creation. 
any sin that we do, any sin that we, we, we experience, any sin that we participate in, any mistakes that you do, something happened to that order. Something happened to that order. Either you decided that you knew more than God and you were going to be put in his space and God, well, whatever he agrees with me, that's the parts of his word that I'll follow. Whatever, uh, you know, I want to do, I'm going to do it anyway. So I put myself in God's place like that's sin that happens. And, and, you know, people that have done that and you've probably done that in your life. There's also a thing that happens to where we begin to serve. We begin to worship things that are created. We begin to like worship with our lives, with our, our finances, with our time, with our minds, with our bodies. We begin to worship things that are created. And by, by doing that, there's also opening the door to sin. And so it, we have to remember that the order of creation, the order that we're supposed to live is God is over us, man. Man is over creation. We have to have dominion over creation. Therefore, we can't just follow whatever desire or lust that we have or, or things that God created. Sex is part of creation. It's, it's, he gave it to us as, as procreation. We can't just follow those desires and let those desires rule over us. We have to rule over them. You were designed to have dominion over creation. Genesis 1:28. not have it have dominion over you. Therefore, anything created, including sex outside of the way that God intended it is idolatry. Anything created that we use outside of the way that God intended it is idolatry. We are serving it. In the same way, money's part of creation. You're supposed to control it. You're supposed to rule over it. It's not supposed to be controlling you. That's idolatry. We have to do things God's way. And God designed this and he provided instructions for it in the context of marriage. If you want to know more, I'm not going to read all of it today, but 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, all the way through chapter 7, verse 40. Thank you. We're not going to read that today. That's a long thing. And I don't know if I can read that much. It's a lot. Go there, read it, and you'll see how God designed sex in marriage. Because of pervasiveness of cohabitation and pornography and loosening of societal taboos surrounding the topic of sex, we are now living in the most sexually saturated culture ever. And studies have found that this exposure correlates with depression, anxiety, stress, and, over, and other social problems. So how do we have dominion over it? How do we get our desires under control? Jesus talks about it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Let's read. You've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. In their culture, the definition of adultery is any, any sex outside of marriage. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, he's, he's, it's not just you doing the act, it's you, the, the thought or the intent of doing the act. Continues in verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Is Jesus telling us to gouge our eyes out, guys? No, 
He's not. That's not what he's saying here. He's using hyperbole. What's hyperbole? He's, that's, that's saying that I'm going to make an exaggerated statement to really bring down a point, to really make a point. Another way for me to say this, I'm going to go buy some golf clubs. Golf clubs, if you guys don't know, this is about $1,000 for a good set of golf clubs. I'm going to go buy some golf clubs. I'm not going to tell Liz about it. I'm just going to go buy them, right? My wife would kill me if I did that. Now, would my wife literally kill me? Would you guys see on the news, you know, pastor in Queen Creek murdered by wife for buying golf clubs. You, you guys wouldn't see that. Like it, it wouldn't happen. She would just be very, very angry. So it's, it's a, that's the kind of statement. It's like, it, should I do it? No, because I, I, I just should honor the relationship that I have with my wife and she deserves to be angry and me to have punishment because of that. And so what Jesus is saying here, he's not telling you literally just go cut your eyes out or whatever, cut your hands off. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, is do whatever you have to do to stay pure. Maybe it's having a relationship with someone to where you can talk to them and you can tell them the work struggling with what you're dealing with. Maybe it's putting blocks on your phone. Maybe it's, here's the thing. If you're married, there's no reason. I don't think, I can't think of one. Why, why my, my wife doesn't know the passwords to my phone. There's no reason why my passwords to my social media accounts, the passwords to whatever. It's not this thing of like, well, because she trusts me, like I can have like this certain level of privacy. No, she's my wife. Like we are one, like there's no privacy between us. Like we are one. Like I want this relationship to be stronger than any other relationship in my life. And so what Jesus is telling us is do whatever you have to do. If you need to go overboard, if you have to do some things to where you're just like, man, like, I, I just need to kind of draw a circle that's really, really small and just stay in it. I could be free to go all these other places, but I'm just going to stay right here in this spot. If you've got to do that, do that so that you can stay pure because it's better for you to do that than for you to lose your soul in the process. The hyperbole that Jesus is using here is telling us to stay pure by any means necessary couple things that I want to tell you about. Um, if you are struggling with, with, you know, stuff with on the internet and stuff like that, there's two little apps I want to tell you about, two websites, x3watch.com, x3watch.com. What that does is it puts a little cookie on your computer and it, you pick an accountability partner in any website that you go and visit that's questionable. They will send that to your accountability partner. They will be able to message you saying, hey, this is something that I saw you visit. Is there anything I can do to help you? Can I pray for you? Can I come alongside of you? I'm not here to judge you, but I'm here to make you better. x3watch.com. The second thing is fightthenewdrug.com. That's a website and it has all kind of things to get rid of those types of issues. And so whatever you have to do to stay pure, stay pure. The next topic that Jesus talks about is divorce. Over the next couple minutes, we're going to talk a little bit about divorce. Before I do this, I want to put down a big grace caveat of what I'm about to say. For many years, I believe that the church shamed divorcees and I don't think that is right. For those of you who have been through it, whether that's yourself or your parents or your close family members, you know that there is pain that is attached to it. But Jesus talks about it. And because Jesus talked about it, there's stuff that we need to learn. Mark chapter 10, verse two through five. Some Pharisees, these are the teachers of the law. These are the people who always tried to trick Jesus into saying the wrong thing. They came and they tested him. By asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus said, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a, man, a written certificate of divorce and send her away. 
So that what could happen, what Moses allowed is you could write a certificate of divorce and you could just send your wife away. But it is, Jesus said, it is because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote this law to you. The Pharisees weren't divorcees. Your hearts were hard was a statement about the culture. It was a statement about the culture that they lived in. He was he was critiquing them and making a statement about who, who they were. And he was also the, the a statement about the culture, specifically how women were treated in the culture. You could literally be married. You had no property rights as a woman. You had no standing in society. You couldn't vote. You couldn't speak up for yourself. You couldn't provide for yourself. And what would happen is is your husband would decide one day that he didn't want to marry you anymore. He could just write a letter and just send you off. And what were you going to do? Like literally what you didn't have a job. What, what were you going to do? There was no standing the book of uh, the book of Ruth. When you read the book of Ruth, you see what happens to a woman in that society when she does not have a marriage to cover her. That was the culture that they're in. Thank God we treat women better today than in that culture. Thank God we do. I have daughters. I'm glad for it. We, we, but that's what he is. And Jesus said, your hearts were hard. But in Matthew 35, 31, Jesus continues this. He, he says, it's also said, again, this is right after Jesus says, it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to go to hell. He continues saying, it's also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Again, this was the culture. This was the law. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This sounds incredibly harsh to us. But we have to understand what Matthew wrote in the original language. The word here for divorce is the word apoluo. That's the, the, the Greek word that he uses. The, that's the word that this used here. Jesus uses the same word in Luke 6.37. And in that cha chapter, or in that verse, the word apoluo means to forgive. So the same word that Matthew uses for divorce, Luke uses for forgiveness. Luke 6, 37, judge not, let you be judged, or you will be judged, condemn not, and you will not, uh, you will not be condemned. Forgive, apoluo, and you will be forgiven, apoluo. This word means to separate or to send away. This is one case where if you have a King James Bible, it's slightly more accurate in its English translation here. It reads whoever, instead of reading whoever divorces his wife, it says whoever sends away his wife. So the definition in the original language in our minds, let's reread it with the apoluo instead of divorce, reading it as to send away. So let's read that verse again, but let's change, just change the words so we can have a little bit better understanding of what it says. It is, it is also said, Matthew 5, 31, whoever sends away his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And I, so that uh, I say to you who, that everyone who sends away his wife, except on the grounds of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a sent away woman also commits adultery. Again, in that culture, men had power. Men could wake up one morning and decide that he no longer wanted to be married, send his wife away. All the property, all the wealth, all the status in society, all that stuff, it just stayed with him and she left with nothing. By providing these instructions, Jesus dignifies women. Jesus dignifies women, giving them a standing in the relationship, telling men, if you're going to do this, you were bringing sin 
on yourself. If you're going to send your away your wife just because you feel like it, you're bringing sin on yourself. If you were a man who sent away his wife, it would cost you just like it cost her. Maybe you've been divorced. Maybe you you uh, are a close family member. You've been through it. You need to be encouraged with this today. Second Corinthians five seventeen says, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. If you've been through a divorce, God's love is big and his grace is big for you. His grace is big for you. He wants to bring you dignity. He wants to bring you wholeness. He wants to bring you love. He wants to bring you peace. He wants to bring you into a community of people that love you. God wants what's best for you. And God wants to help you be dignified in life. He wants to, to, you have a plan. God has a plan for your life. He has a purpose for your life. And he wants to, to honor you in life. He wants to make sure that people aren't taking advantage of you. And that's the command that Jesus is giving here. Divorce not only affects the couple. Children of divorced parents are twice more likely to be divorced themselves. Uh, They're slower at developing uh, trusting relationships. They have less positive attitudes towards marriage, even hesitancy sometimes. Uh, They are more accepting attitudes towards divorce. This was all uh, done by a Christian uh, study uh, that happened a few years back. However, the same studies show that consistent participation in church reduces the generational effects of divorce. Jesus is the great healer. So if you've been divorced and you want your children to have healthy marriages, go to church, go to church, be a part of a church, be a part of a group of believers, be a part of uh, people who are, who are loving God and, and doing that. Jesus uh, talks about that. Then he, he finally talked about making oaths. Matthew chapter five, verse 33, Jesus continues again. You have heard that it is said in the days of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Some of us are trying. Uh, You cannot make one hair white or black. Let, Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more then this comes from evil. What is Jesus talking about here? Let's jump back to Exodus chapter 20 in the 10 commandments. He said the the third commandment says this, you shall not take the name of the Lord, your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Again, this is the third of the 10 commandments. When I was growing up and I heard this commandment, I thought it was telling me don't cuss, right? Don't be cussing. Don't say dirty words. You put a soap in your mouth, Ralphie style. You just be, you know, it's not, it's not going to be a good day for you. However, that's not what this commandment is talking about. This commandment is not talking about cussing. When we talk about don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain, that's not 
talking about cussing. Now, for the potty mouths in the room, this does not let you off the hook. James 3 verse 10 says this, for out of the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does, the, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh water and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or grapevine bear fruits, uh, bear figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. What James is telling us there is that you can't bless God and curse other people. So again, we're not off the hook. All right. You just can't can't do it. So got to have control over your tongue. You got to do that. But what is the third commandment teaching us? What does it have to do with Jesus command about oaths? The third commandment is a, a prohibition on using the name of God to manipulate other people for selfish reasons. That's what it's there for. You, in, in, this could be you saying something like, I swear to God for, for people to, 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 to have more faith in you and uh, what you're saying, or it could be like you putting a Christian fish on your business card and then ripping people off. You ever heard anybody do that? It's using the name of God for selfish reasons. That's what it prohibits us to do. And so as Jesus is talking about us and he's saying, look, don't be taking oaths. Don't be swearing by things. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Just let what you say, let the words that you say, let it come across as true. Just always be honest. I've heard it said that when someone says uh, they start a sentence with honestly or to be honest, when, when, when starting a sentence like that, you, you sometimes ask, well, have they been honest up to this point? You ever done that? You know, have you been honest to this point? Because why are you just telling me now to be honest? Like what was what was all that before this? Right. Uh, you, you know, you, do, do you do you do this? Do you start a lot of sentences with honestly? I feel like I do. You know, <laughs> I feel like that. if that's you, I don't want you to feel bad today. Uh, Jesus would start several sentences with a Hebrew word. Amen. That's where we get the word. Amen. That's how we close our prayers. Right. What it means is let it be. So what it can also mean is in the King James, they translate it as verily and in, in uh, other languages, they translate it as truly. And it's just a way of bringing home a point. It's just a way of bringing home a point. So if you're here today and you're like, man, I say honestly a lot. That's OK. Jesus did the same thing. Amen. Amen. And then he'd make a point. Truly, truly, verily, verily, I say to you, he'd make a point. Jesus did that, too. So it's OK to do that. It's, I'm not telling you to do that. So honestly, today, give yourself a break. Give yourself a break. <laughs> you can do that. What is Jesus trying to teach us here? Jesus is teaching us that we should guard our words so much that oaths aren't necessary. Guard your words so much that oaths aren't necessary. Your yes is as good as gold. Your no is as simple of an answer as it could be. It, both of those, your yes and your no, should simply be enough. If that's not good enough in the conversations that you have and people don't trust your yes for yes or your no for no, then, then and it, they require you to you know, put collateral down on it or swear to God or whatever it is that, that they want you to say on top of it, pinky swear, whatever it is, then it sh shows that you got some work to do. Like we got to tighten up on on this on, on, on my promises. Like if I if I've got a pinky promise my kid that I'm going to take her to ice cream when I say I'm going to take her to ice cream, then I need to like follow through with my word a little bit. 
It's practical things like this. This is what Jesus is talking about when he's talking to us. Just simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. We read in James 3 earlier. Let's back up a couple of verses. James 3, verse 3 through 5. If we put bits into our, the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Again, just take the picture. You just put a bit in the mouth of a horse. And because you do that, that horse is going to obey you and you can guide its body. Look also at ships. They are very large. They're so large and they're driven by strong winds. Yet they are, guard, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. We have to be careful what our words say. We have to careful what we speak. We have to be careful what we say, because if you follow the progression of what Jesus is talking about, Jesus wants you and I to be salt and light in a world that is lost and hurting. And so for us as Christians, if our words don't line up, if our words aren't consistent, if our words aren't, aren't, aren't something that people can count on and take to the bank, then there's a problem with that. Today, you might be struggling with speaking the truth. That might be just something that you struggle with. You, you catch yourself all the time telling these little white lies, telling these little lies or things stretching the truth or whatever, blaming someone else. Someone else said this, but really you said it. But here's the thing. As Christians, Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the truth. He said so himself, John 14, verse six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father there except by me. Therefore, as followers of Jesus, we should be people of the truth. Jesus is the truth. Therefore, as his followers, we should be people of the truth. And so today, if you're struggling with that, you need to take that to Jesus. You need to take that to Jesus and say, Jesus, my words don't line up. My yes needs to be yes. My no needs to become no. Maybe you're struggling with some other thing that, that Jesus talked about. Maybe there's something where you, you need some accountability in your life. Maybe it's something where you've had relationships in your past that fall apart. The commandment, or the commandment of Jesus is very, very clear to us, but the grace of Jesus is equally as clear clear in what we read in first or second Corinthians. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. You can have new life today. You don't have to live in the same sin, in the same struggle, in the same uh, guilt, in the same past. You don't have to always be looking back. Jesus's payment on the cross, Jesus's blood will cover that and you can have life in him new. You can have new life today. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, as we look to your word, the, the, all these things, they just challenge us. I know for me, just to, just to always do and say the right thing. Lord, to be, to, to honor my marriage, God. And Father, today I pray for every single person in this room. I know today there was a lot of things, just very direct things that you said to us. But Jesus, I thank you that it's not about us getting it right. You made us right. And so, God, our righteousness, our desire to do the right thing, God, it's just it doesn't come out of a desire to earn your favor. It comes out of a desire of just being grateful for what you've done for us. And so today, for those of us in this room who may have struggled with any one of these topics, 
that you talk to us about. Jesus, I pray that your grace would be real to them, that your spirit would, would shine a light in those parts of our lives, in those parts of our hearts, Lord, where, where we, we were struggling. And Lord, that we wouldn't let the sin stay secret. We wouldn't let the shame stay secret. We wouldn't try to cover it up, but God, we would be open and honest with you. Because Lord, we know that you are a healer. You're the one who delivers us. You're the one who sets us free. You're the one who, who, who breaks the, the yoke of sin, the chains of sin in our lives. So God, hiding it does us no good. We have to confess it to you. And so, Father, today I pray for each and every person in this room. God, I pray, Lord, as your spirit shines that light on the parts of us that are broken, Lord, may we confess to you our sin, our shame, our regret, our guilt, so that we can find wholeness, peace, and forgiveness. In Jesus' name.